All right, we're continuing our review of Botany in a Day. Um, we're about to jump into conifers. For me, that's page 36 of the fourth edition. 44 of the fifth edition for me. Oh, man. So uh, you've got a lot of extra information up, up to this point. Uh, <clears throat> so let's see. Uh, Penny ACA, is that correct? Uh, the pine family? Pineaceae or Pineaceae? Pineaceae? And, and as the Canadians say, uh, Pineaceae? Eh? <laughs> um, so then uh, the pine family produces edible seeds that are rich in oils, although they are small and difficult to gather from most species. The needles may be used as in tea for a beverage or medicinally for a diuretic. The pine family is highly resinous, useful for its expectorant properties, but overconsumption may lead to kidney complications. You know, from, from the, the research that I did, um, because, that, you know, this is part of one of the things we do. We were, like, looking at this, and it's like, no, we want more information. We want more, 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 more. And it's, and it's short for a reason. It's, it's trying to, like, you know, not, not go too deep in a bunch of different species. It's, it's trying to help guide you to a species. It's, it's trying to give a high-level idea of the properties of these plants. And um, when, when looking it up, I kind of got the impression that all conifers are medicinal. I think so. Okay. In some way or another, uh, you know. But but the medicinal properties of the different families are are different. For, yes. for example, the medicinal properties of the yew family and the cedar family will be different than the medicinal properties of the pine family. Right. Absolutely. That, and that was my impression too. Yeah, and that that's why right. that separating them out into families is very useful because they have different medicinal uses, different practical edible uses, different. Uh, wood types and wood uses of those wood types. So right. that, that's the utility of the, the family level differentiation. So now um, we divided up um, the species, and, um, and and the mission was let's come up with. Um, well, you know, I should I should change that. We divided up the genie, genie, the genera, genera. Um, <laughs> so, uh, uh, which is the plural for genus, right? Right. The genus is singular. Genera is multiple genuses. Is 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 is. Right. And I kind of think of it as like the generic term, like all pines are in the pinus genera. So the, a generic term for a pine is just a pine, but a specific term for a pine is a ponderosa pine, a pinon pine a white pine, and then even within those you need to get more specific sometimes. Okay. All right. All right. And that's where you have genera and species is generic and specific. So um, <clears throat> uh, for the uh, genus Abies, uh, there are, um, this is, this is uh, some of the first. Apparently there are two gen genera. There are two genera for fir trees. Right, there's the and, abies, which are the true fir trees. Oh, so the Douglas fir is not a true fir tree. It's a Douglas fir, and it's often hyphenated because it's a Douglas fir. Not a, the fir is not separate from Douglas, I guess. So pseudosuga, or Douglas fir. Okay, all right. Oh, because um, the, the hemlocks are suga, and, and so pseudosuga would be like, 
smells like a suga, but not really. Yeah, like it almost looks like it, but the the cones and the reproductive organs are different enough that it's it's its own genera. Okay. All right. All right. So now I took on Abies, which has so there are of of the the true furs. There are apparently 50 species worldwide, and there are two species in Montana. And um, and I'm familiar with this particular species, Abies grandis, the grand fur. Um, however, I don't know what the other species is. I, I tried to look around a little bit, and I couldn't figure it out. Like I'm gonna, if there's, I would guess that it's the white fur, Abies concolor. That's very prolific in the western U.S. and a common one, especially in mountainous areas. Well, now, see, now, I I thought that that could be it, too. But, see, now, grand furs, I've heard a lot of people refer to grand furs as white furs. But then when I'm looking it up, I'm finding out that it's like, oh, yeah, when you have a grand fur, it is, it is explicitly not a white fur, even though sometimes people say that. But it's definitely not. But the other thing is, is that white fur doesn't grow around here. Okay. So so then, therefore, it would not be a Montana fur. I suppose people could, you know, plant white fur. Um, I think it would definitely grow there. Probably, yeah, yeah. Um, it's like when I when I was looking up spruce trees, I was thinking, oh yeah, it'll be like a blue spruce. But no, it turns out that blue spruce doesn't come from around here. But there's a lot of it around here because I know a lot of people um, have have planted it. They think it's lovely and beautiful, and it and it has extremely shallow roots, as you find out every time there's a big windstorm. Because <laughs> <laughs> it blows right over. <laughs> there's all these trees lying on the ground. What kind? Oh, it's another blue spruce. <laughs> all the blue spruce trees got knocked down. So, um, all right. So focusing for a moment on. Abies grandis, the grand fur, uh, it's also referred to as the giant fur, the lowland white fur, great silver fur, western white fur, Vancouver fur, or Oregon fur. But definitely not white fur. Right. <laughs> People are saying that are just silly. They don't know. That, Although, that, I bet it, I've done that in the past. Well, that's the issue with... <laughs> Common names is that that they can. There's probably five common names for a lot of plants, and that's why you have the scientific name, which is standard around the world, not just in North America even. So now the grand fir, the the Abies grandis, is um, uh, well known for a Christmas tree. It's a very popular one for Christmas trees, and then the way I've always spotted it is that um, it's the conifer that has the needles. I, I always think to myself that the flat needles, and of course it's not that the needles themselves are flat, which they actually are, but it's that if you were to like look at a twig straight onto the end of the twig, then it, the, the needles would stick out at like 9 o'clock and 3 o'clock, although sometimes they do more like a 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock kind of a thing. But it's not like the needles go all the way around the twig. They just stick out just... At the sides, they, they're horizontal. They don't stick up. They don't stick up. They don't stick down. They always kind of stick out horizontal, although sometimes kind of uppish horizontal. Yeah, and sometimes that depends on the temperature or the time of day or you know several other things, the age of the the stem. Uh, and but in particular, not only are they 
They're usually in two rows that are relatively horizontal. They're also very soft, and they're not spiky. Yeah. So they're furry. Yeah. Friendly furs is often something that I've heard to help identify a fur tree. So now, I remember one time getting suckered into helping my son's Boy Scout troop with making uh, Christmas wreaths. And, um, and yes, uh, working with the furs, and because my hands are so freaky enormous that it's difficult for me to find gloves. And, uh, and then um, when we would work with the wreaths, and it's like, oh, yes, fur is lovely. Oh, cedar, so lovely. Um, spruce, no, not lovely. Sharp, sharp <laughs> spiky spruce, yeah. Ow, 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 ow. I'm done. I'm not doing any more spruce. <laughs> Somebody with gloves can do spruce. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so, that's the uh, easiest way to tell the difference is the spruce have the needles all the way around the stem and a kind of cylindrical pattern, and they're very spiny. And they're, they're short. They're similar length to a fur, fur needle, but they're very spiny you know, I, and hard. I always kind of think of hemlock as being the one where the, the needles go all the way around, but it's soft. I think that's that's reasonable, yeah. And they're they're and, blunt, they're flat. And then the needles go all the way around, but they're very ouchy. That's a spruce, right? So the, and then uh, and then when it comes to a Douglas fir, um, I always seem to notice the pine cones first. And that's the most distinguishing characteristic that differentiates them from the hemlocks and firs. Is it, yeah, they have those pine cones that have the little tridents that look like maybe a mouse's tail with two feet sticking out the back, like it climbed in to eat the seed. Right. So I, I always told that there's, there are miniature monkeys that are trying to hide from you. Okay, yeah. And they hide in the pine cones. And so, yeah, it looks like there's a little monkey butt sticking out of the, out of the, like the little leaves of the pine cones, little scales of the pine cone. And it's a very distinctive pine cone. So, um, but all right, all right. So now we're talking about the uh, the Abies grandis, the grand fir. Um, so, uh, as I'm reading about this, this book called uh, Plants of the Pacific Northwest Coast um, has this enormous list of stuff that the grand fir is used for. Um, and I'm going to say Abies grandis. I'm trying to use the scientific name because I want that to stick in my head. Ab is grandis. I'm trying to get better at that. Um, but but the things that I thought were real, the most interesting were fish hooks, bark canoes, and then they had like this whole thing about how it was a, a, a bath. Like you would have a bath, but you would put stuff from the tree into the bath. I didn't quite get what you would put in it, but it was usually um, uh, bits of the tree and something else. I don't. I don't know. Maybe it's like a luxury bath of some sort. If you take a bath with, uh, and you include some of the grand fur stuff, that that bath is better than a regular bath. Uh, well, he's saying here in Botany in a Day that it's uh, can be used as an aromatic bath for rheumatism and nervous diseases. So it sounds like a, it, it, a medicinal bath. Yep, it releases okay. those aromas that you inhale, and that's where it adds to to the properties of the bath. Um, and okay. and then externally as a rubifacient, um, and this is the oleoresin which he's talking about there. So that might also be uh, be in there. Fur contains turpentine and other resins. So that those, yeah. those are other potential you know utility or uh, 
dangers that you could be uh, encountering when you use it for a bath. All right, so <clears throat> let's go ahead and do one of yours now. Okay, if you like. Uh, well, I took on the, the Pinus genus, which are all the pine trees, and um, they make the edible pine nuts, and, and so there's several species that I selected specifically for that. Uh, the okay. native North American pine nuts that I'm most familiar with that grow in the, uh, the western and northern United States are Pinus edulis, which is the Colorado pinion. Uh, or the two-leafed pinion pine. That's Pinus edulis. And it's one of the most common pine nut trees in North America and produces the, the larger crop of pine nuts than some of the other pine nut trees in North America. So that's, the, that's our pinion pine. And it's got two needles. Uh, pines in general have their needles uh, enclosed in a sheath at the base, and they are usually grouped in groups of one to five. Uh, so that's one of the ways to tell a pine needle is that they're round needles, they're relatively strong, they're pointy at the end, and they're enclosed in a sheath at the base where they attach to the stem. Uh, but as you go, the Pinus edulis is mostly in the four corner states, Colorado, uh, Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah. And as you go further north and also uh, further west, you get the single leaf pinion, which is pino monophylla, which means single leaf. So rather than pinus edulis, the Colorado pinion, we have the single leaf pinion out here where I live in, in Reno and in, in Nevada primarily, uh, which is pinus monophylla. And that produces smaller cones, fewer nuts per tree, but still pretty prolific uh, as far as pine nuts are, are uh, concerned. So have you ever harvested the pine nuts? I I have only harvested them on the ground. Some of the stuff that I was reading uh, suggests that you harvest them in the cones as just before they open, and uh, that people use like a long stick with a hook and a basket, and they just pluck them right off the trees, and then they dry them out until they they open completely, and then they harvest all the nuts that way. And so, if you're doing it commercially, that's definitely a, a more effective way to do it. Just pulling off a bunch of cones into a basket, taking them in the, to a central location rather than trying to, uh, you know, pick them off the ground or use some sort of rake or something like that to, to sort them. Uh, also, you're going to lose a lot to birds that way or potentially uh, have ones that have more grubs and things in them if you're harvesting them off the ground um, or to squirrels or, you know, all sorts of things that, that start grabbing them as soon as they open. Right. It It just seems to me like from all the stuff that I've read in this book as well as some of the other books while I was doing this research, it it just kind of seemed like, um, well, you better really like these because it's, it's going to be a lot of work for a little bit of food. Right. And, you know, uh, the people that I've talked to that have harvested them more extensively are say that it's not that bad. I mean, it's just, you know, like harvesting fruits or other nuts. You got you got it. It takes work. <laughs> um, and then... When they open, you just run them through a shaker screen, and it shakes the nuts out. Now, getting them out of the shells is a different story. And that, if you really want to eat a lot of them, is probably a machine type of uh, operation, or it is a lot of work um, for not a lot of food, because they're not as big as things like walnuts or uh, almonds. Um, but one of the things that I thought was, you know, one of the utilitarian aspects of this book and identifying things down to genus is that 
I can look at other analog species in the Pinus genus that will probably grow where I am because both of the pinon pines that grow in my area are very slow growing and might not create harvestable uh, cones for 50 or 60 years. But uh, there's a Korean nut pine or Korean stone pine, Pinus coriensis, which is a medium-rate growing tree. It grows much faster than the uh, Pinus edulis or Pinus monophylla. And that, that will grow in my climate. And uh, it will grow faster and taller and produce nuts more quickly. And that's actually uh, apparently the most uh, widespread commercially grown pine nut species is Pinus coriensis. So when we buy pine nuts in a bag after they've been shelled, they're probably Korean nut pines. Pine nuts from Korean nut pines rather than from pinyon pines like the, the indigenous peoples out here would be harvesting. The American pines. That's right. So we got, you know, the Americans, the slow-growing, long-lived, and then the Korean, which are a little bit faster-growing. The wood is softer. They grow much taller. Um, they have five needles per sheath and and long a little bit longer needles so there's you know differences but they're analogs to the degree that i could um, plant one here and expect it to grow effectively and uh meet similar ecosystem niches and feed similar animals and those sorts of things so that's one of the powers of using the uh kind of family and genus method of organizing is you can start to find analog uh, species very quickly and effectively so now my understanding is, is that all of uh, the the pine trees, all, all of the conifer trees, I mean, would that be, I wonder if, well, from the Pinaceae pine family, I don't know, not necessarily from cedars and yews and the others, but from Pinaceae, all of the nuts are edible. That was my impression. It's just that some of them are easier to harvest, you know, like, like, um, work per pound of food right. than others. Yeah, and bigger, I think, is a big part of that. So these stone yeah. pines and the pinyon pines have much larger seeds, and that that's critical if you're trying to, you know, effort per pound of foot or per pound of food that you're harvesting. Right. If you're using that as your metric, which is a reasonable one, uh, then that's important. Is that the seeds are relatively large because it, a lot of the effort is actually in the cracking of the seed coat, the shell, and getting the seed out. So now, um, okay. So moving moving on from is that all you got for the, uh, the for the edible nut pines for the ones that are the big ones for eating on? Yeah, because for the edible nut pines, and then uh, you know I I do well. Actually, there's one interesting fact I found was the Italian stone pine. This is the Mediterranean pine nut. So anytime you're eating, you know, in Europe and you're eating pine nuts, is probably these trees, Pinus pinia. It's, you know, one of the, the first pines that, that was named. So just Pinus pinia uh, was cultivated for pine nuts 6,000 years ago. So it was domesticated a long time ago, and it's been used in the Mediterranean region as a food crop for over 6,000 years. I thought that was pretty so interesting. So it's probably a, um, a pretty good producer that's easy to harvest, would be a guess. I think so. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's been bred for that because it's been cultivated for that long. Uh, right. The, the issue for me is that it doesn't tolerate the cold temperatures of, of the winter that where I live. 
Uh, it only oh. it only tolerates down to about <laughs> somewhere between zero and ten degrees Fahrenheit is my understanding. Okay. So for for southern for the southern U.S. or even you know central U.S. where it doesn't get as cold, this would be a very good opportunity to select. Okay. All right. All right. So then, when it when it comes to pine trees, I think that the uh, <clears throat> the the big pine tree around here is the ponderosa pine, uh, also called the bull pine. Yes. Yeah. And ponderosa pine was often used for timber or for firewood. It's the uh, the tallest of the pine trees, so it grows very large. You know, up, upwards of 250 feet. And we have it down here as well. It's very prolific at the, the medium to high altitudes in the Sierras. And that's Pinus ponderosa. Correct. I'm trying to see if there's like they have notes in the book about that. I, I'm not seeing anything. Am I missing it? In the Botany in a Day? Yeah, in Botany in a Day. Do they talk about Pinus ponderosa at all? No, he does not. Okay. He's got a picture of it or a drawing of it, I should say. That's right. Yeah. And then Pinus ponderosa is a tricky one because they, most pines, you know, they have a certain number of needles per sheet, but there's so many, um, like, subspecies or varieties of Pinus ponderosa uh, that it varies from two to five needles per, per sheet, depending on where you are. Um, so it's kind of a tricky one to identify, but it is one of the most common ones in North America, if not... Uh, the most common in the the colder climates of North America. Really long needles. Yes. And kind of a sparse tree, kind of like there's not a lot of needles on the tree. You can kind of you can kind of see the sun through the tree pretty easy. Mhm. And and prickly pine cones. Yeah, stabby, very stabby. Mhm. Yeah, not you don't want to really you don't you, you can pick them up tenderly, but you definitely don't want to give them a squeeze. <laughs> right. Yeah. You can play so, a, and, a joke on your friend by tossing him one and having him catch it when he's not wearing gloves. <laughs> Don't drop that. <laughs> Ow. Yeah. So uh, what what else you got for Pinus? Uh, those were the ones I just picked those five because I, mostly I looked at the edible ones. I figured they'd be the ones people would be most interested in. I just I just realized you could you could uh, possibly pronounce this a slightly different way, like penis. If you like. But, but, but that's probably not accurate. It's probably pronounced Pinus. <laughs> so, um, uh, all right, the next one I've got, then, if you, so that's all, if you've got all of the, if that's all, I'm, now I'm trying to think, is it uh, for the Pinus g- genus? Right. Yeah, that's all the ones that you have for the Pinus genus. Those are the ones I looked at. I mean, there's a lot more that are native to Western North America and, and pretty common. People are probably right. familiar with them. Um, but I, so I, now, I narrowed it down to the ones mostly that I was interested in regarding edible nuts and then the largest and probably most prolific one in Western North America. So the one uh, that I've... Uh, um, oh, and I should mention I've got a note I've got a note here right from the book Botany in a Day about uh, earlier I was talking about uh Abies grandis the grand fir uh steeped fir needles makes one, one of my uh favorite wilderness teas and and this is a good point to point out that um I know that uh, I remember 
like there's this there's a, a drink mix that you could get. I've never tried it, but I've heard of people getting it called emergency. And then I've heard of people referring to like if you get fur needles, and then you uh, make a drink out of that. They refer to that as a emergent fur, and it has a lot of vitamin C in it. Um, but the the next one that I've got picked out is from the Larix genus, which is going to be your larches and your tamaracks. Uh, and these are interesting because these are the only conifers that are deciduous. And usually it's like when you're talking about trees, there's all your conifer trees and all of your deciduous trees. And then there's this little teeny tiny bunch of trees that are the odd ducks that are actually, they have needles that all fall off in the fall. Right. And those are the larches. And then there's some other ones like the, the bald cypress, um, which is a different family, but it's still a conifer. Um, really? I didn't know that the bald cypress did that. That's why it's called the bald cypress, because it goes bald. <laughs> okay. At least that's mine. So, and the Don Redwood, which is also in the, the bald cypress family. Um, and then there's, you know, the evergreen trees that are broadleaves. And there's there's lots, or, or plants. There's a lot of those, especially as you get to the tropics. Then you really get a lot of broadleaf evergreens. Cool. I, I've, I learned that citrus plants are uh, effectively evergreens. And that and that the, because uh, like when we were on this uh, tour, we stopped off at Chaffin Family Orchards, and they um, uh, were talking about, like, if you leave an orange on the tree for more than a year, then it gets even sweeter. And, uh, and, and there was a lot of stuff at the Chaffin stuff that was really excellent and awesome. But the, the orange that I tried that was more than a year old was not one of the awesome things. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was all psyched up like I'm going to eat this amazing delicious orange that's far more delicious than other people have experienced, and um, and so I was all excited that I was going to have this amazing experience and um, and he, and later uh, Chris told me that oh that that must have been one that wasn't very good. Usually they're really good, and uh, okay all right we didn't we didn't find another one that was awesome. Yeah, we, citrus that, trees that are was, finicky, and there's so many varieties of oranges, and then they're really dependent on temperature and sunlight access and soils and how much water they got and it's right so every time i eat an orange off of a tree that's you know not a out of a very cultivated orchard i'm amazed by the fact that there's consistency at all in oranges that are in the supermarket and citrus in general i'm I'm always amazed by the consistency of, of kind of the supermarket stuff because when i eat them off of trees the consistency is so is not there. It's just so varied right, from tree to tree. Um, so it, it, it's a tricky, tricky scenario. Huh. Because like when I eat trees or if I eat fruit off of an apple tree, then it seems like it's very consistent. Right. Yeah. And even like a apple variety, the same variety planted in different soils, you know, that stays pretty consistent in my experience. Yeah. And, huh. and with citrus, my experience is that's not the case. Wow. Wow. So they must have ways of being able to determine quality. Like they must put in 10 oranges and then it's like one orange out of 10 gets picked for fresh eating and the rest get to make, get to go to the uh, orange juice factory. Yep. And, and then, you know, having a, an orchard on a consistent soil type in a consi- you know, in one area in California, for example, would be, you know, then you, then you can have a, a consistent harvest of that specific variety. Huh. 
Interesting. And, and my experience isn't that extensive with, with citrus, but it's just, just what I've you know observed is that there's a lot more variety even within a single variety uh, than with other some other trees and fruits. So for the genus Larix, which is your larches and your tamaracks, and these are the, the, the deciduous conifers, so the conifers that lose their needles, and there's apparently one other bald cypress stuff. But um, for that one, then I took that on, and um, uh, around here, um, there there is a, a very common species. The, um, the book Botany Today says that there are two species of larix in the area, but I really only found one, and that's the western larch. And a lot of people around here, and apparently it's different from an actual authentic tamarack, but around here people call it tamarack a lot. And it's it's definitely the most popular uh, wood for heating your home, when you're heating your home for with wood. Uh, so it's it's Larix occidentalis. Did I pronounce that correctly? I think so. Yeah. Is that a good Larix occidentalis? And occidentalis basically means Western United States. Oh, okay. Why is that? How do you get Western United States out of occidentalis? It's the Occidental region. I don't, <laughs> I don't, that's, <laughs> okay. that's my exposing my ignorance right there. That's as much as I know. But that's okay. Um, a lot of Western U.S. plants are called some some sort of genus name and then Occidentalis. For example, the Western redbud is Circus Occidentalis, or the Western juniper is Juniperus Occidentalis. So you that that's where the scientific name helps you tell uh, something about the plant and where it comes from, its region. Okay. All right. Uh, you know, another tree that has a lot of medicinal values. I didn't, I didn't note all the medicinal stuff, but there was an interesting thing about using larches for syrups, for like sugar syrup, and and it sounded like what they would do is that they would carve a hole into the tree and like like carve a bowl out of the heartwood, and that they would come back later, and then the bowl would have filled with with sap. And then they would they would just leave it there, and then it would it would slowly dry out on its own, and then become a, a syrup. So like you know rather than like tapping a maple tree, and then you take the sap and then you boil it down effectively. You 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 heat it, and you uh, um, reduce it down to syrup. They would just like make a bowl in the tree. It would fill up with the sap. The sap would, um, you know, lose a lot of the water just to common evaporation. And they'd come back, like, you know, a week or two later and get the syrup out. Wow. Yeah, it was it was wild. And it sounds like it's one of those things where you can do it to a tree once, and you're never doing it again. Right. I, I, you might be able and, to and, tap these trees just like you do a, a maple tree or, or other trees for syrup or latex or things like that as well. Maybe, yeah. Um, I, they didn't say it where I was reading about it, and this was in the book Montana Native Plants and Early Peoples. Right. Um, so early peoples, like indigenous peoples or something, may have may have used that methodology. Yeah, yeah, and it didn't say it, but I assume it killed the tree. But it didn't, it didn't say whether it killed the tree or not. But I just assume it it probably did. Yeah, I mean, you um, create a, a huge uh, opening for disease and insects and things like that when you dig a big hole out like that that's open. <laughs> yeah. The, the tree, it's got to make the tree sad. Um, so, uh, uh, but 
here was an interesting thing is that from Wikipedia, apparently uh, a larch or, or Western larch, Larix occidentalis, uh, particularly valued for yacht building. There's wow. something uh, about the wood that's like, oh, this is the best wood for for building a yacht. Um, I'm not sure. I'm guessing probably a racing yacht, not a not a like a Buffy. Let's take the yacht out and have lunch. <laughs> uh, not not that kind of yacht. I, I but I don't know. I don't know. Um, I would guess so too. I'm guessing that the uh, more luxury yacht type of boat, it's not as important which type of wood is used because they're not enduring the same type of forces as a, a racing yacht. Yeah. That would be my guess. So they don't care. You know, they want to make it out of something cheap that looks nice. A land whale for water. Right. <laughs> so uh, um, apparently, uh, and, and it does last longer than a lot of other coniferous wood outdoors. I know that Sap has talked about using it for his animal shelters and root cellars. Nice. That sounds so, and I, yeah. I would think uh, cedar... And, and cypress would also be really good for those. But we'll get to those later. Yeah, I think cedar's going to be a weaker wood. <clears throat> I don't know about cypress. <clears throat> right. Uh, but, yeah, cedar's not a particularly strong wood, whereas um, I kind of get the impression that, um, you know, the uh, Larix occidentalis is a pretty a pretty strong wood. I, I always kind of thought that uh, one of the ways you could kind of spot one in the wintertime, so all the needles are gone, is it looks like, oh, it could be a dead tree because <laughs> <laughs> there's no needles on it. But uh, it seems to, like, lose its lower branches naturally, easily, quickly. And so it's always, when I, it seems like the way I remember spotting them, because I'm not, like, looking at one right now, is that um, it has, like, the top third of the tree has, you know, branches, and the rest of it has no branches. It's like a straight pole. Which also makes it nice for building. And, yeah. you know, rather than a cedar or juniper, which usually are a little more contorted. Right. Oh, yeah, especially junipers. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that's all I got on Larix occidentalis, the western larch. Awesome. Your turn. I like the, uh, the part in the book where it says, drink the tea of the needles as a carminative to expel gas from the large tree. <laughs> See, I expel gas without it. <laughs> well, then, aren't, aren't you special? Yeah, I have special <laughs> skills. I have superpowers, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you're ever having trouble expelling gas, you can uh, wander over to a large tree and make some tea. You know, one time I ate... Uh, uh, I was working somewhere, and they brought in all these fancy bagels, and they had all those those fancy different kinds of cream cheeses, and I kind of went a little crazy trying those out, and I think I ate some apples, too. So somehow all this mix made it so that I could expel gas especially well. And and it was it was so um, so much of it that on the way home that night, I was pretty sure I was going to learn a whole new way to whistle. Wow. Aren't you glad I shared that? <laughs> I'm sure everyone is. <laughs> aren't, aren't you glad that you brought up the part about expelling gas? Yeah, I will remember not to do that every day on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can be taught. Yes, slowly but surely. 
with lots of repetition. So, uh, what? You, it's your turn. What, what do you? Uh, what's your next tree? I think we'll go with the, the Douglas fir. Okay. Uh, All right. So that's Sudasuga menziesi or menziesi. Sudasuga menziesi. And wow. and the Douglas firs. There's you know basically one uh, primary one in North America, which is why we just call it Douglas fir. And it's the the second tallest tree on the planet is something that I read after the coast redwood. Huh. Second tallest. It's very fast growing. It's one of the primary, if not the primary, timber plant for North America. And uh, go ahead. I always think of it as the biggest weed. Yes. It's really, it's often grown in monocultures. Uh because it doesn't grow well in shade, and so if you get other plants that grow up over it, then it tends to die back, and suddenly you get plants that are favored, like the hemlock, like the western hemlock, which we'll talk about in a minute. So usually when people cultivate it, they cultivate it in, in monoculture woodlots, um, both for industrial capacities and because it's difficult to, to grow it um, as you start to get mixed canopy and uh, canopy closure. Uh, and it grows really fast, you know, six to 10 feet a year, I think. It's similar to almost like a poplar tree, but but as a conifer. Um, and in here, he says that you could eat the seeds, but it's basically a waste of your time. Uh, so don't bother. And I would just use it uh, as kind of a fast-growing, uh, fast-carbon pathway to get biomass developed in the site and then cut it out to let more useful trees uh, kind of succeed into the climax of your woodland, but it's it's great as a, a quick growing species for poles or other sorts of uh, of wood products if you if you need stuff right away. You know, it has very low uh, number of knots. It's very straight. The branches are far apart, so it's good as a as a wood for milling and things like that. Which is par- partly why it's become the primary lumber tree for for the United States. Right, there's a variety of techniques for um, growing them and, and bunching them together, so that way they they race for the sun and it makes them grow straighter and faster, and 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 uh, the the branches will naturally prune off, the lower branches will naturally prune off better, things like that, which are not exactly properties that we're normally looking for. I when you're looking at the genus name, I you know it sounds like you're you're saying it twice, sort of, but but it's like the the parts of the word are so different. I mean, first of all, you got pseudo, which is false. Like, which is is it false or like not really? Right. Smells like. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I always kind of think smells like, and and then uh, and then suga, which is spelled T S U G A. Right. Uh, suga. So the T is sort of silent. Pseudo suga. Right. Which it uh, means that it's. A false hemlock, which and then they then it's a Douglas fir, which means it's a false fir, and so they do a whole lot of confusing nomenclature in here to really make it so you don't know what this tree is. It's all on its own. And remember, two falses don't make a true. That's right. They make a Douglas fir. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, anything else on the Douglas fir? Uh, no, that's it that I have. So uh, uh, I've got the genus 
Piscier, um, and uh, that's basically the, the spruces. Uh, and um, I've got one um, spruce that, that grows around here, uh, which I've never heard of before. But I, I was thinking it was going to be the blue spruce, but you know the, the blue spruce is an ornamental that's brought up from other places, I guess. Colorado. It's called the Colorado blue spruce. There you go. And uh, um, so this is the one we have is the Engelman spruce, uh, Piscea Engelmani. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, but it's like we were talking about earlier, very pokey. That's that's my primary indicator. Like, oh yeah, that's a spruce because it hurts my hands. Um, the the wood is uh, considered good for indoor stuff, not for outdoor stuff. Apparently, it rots outdoors really fast. Just just decomposes in a heartbeat. Uh, it's very popular for paper because when they monkey with it for paper, it's like got these long stringy bits in it that that do well in paper. Um, Wikipedia had an interesting little uh, comment. Captain Cook made alcoholic sugar-based spruce beer during his sea voyages in order to prevent scurvy in his crew. Interesting. So it has some vitamin C in it. Uh, probably most of the Pinus family, the Pinaceae, have some vitamin C in their needles. Yeah, I think I think a lot of them uh, do. Um, Hence the emergency reference for fur earlier that you were making for the fur tea. Right, but that, that was of course for fur. Now we're talking about spruce. But I I think it's going to apply to to all of the conifers. But I'm not. And I think all I would, all of I, the pine family. Are going to have vitamin C type compounds in their needles? Would be my guess. I, I that would be my guess. Double check too. it a little bit more. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe not the cedars. They might not. Or if they if they do, you probably don't want to be drinking that. Yeah, but I'm not. I sure. definitely would not make a tea out of the yew tree needles and, and drink it. Uh, I would want to do a lot more research before doing that because I think it could be deadly. And another interesting thing I found out about the spruce tree, uh, and I got this from the book uh, Plants of the Pacific Northwest Coast, uh, the uh, native folks would uh, take the inner bark and they would eat it fresh or they would dry it into cakes. So, I mean, I mean, of course, with the inner bark, that's where you're going to have your xylem and phloem, and uh, that's where you're going to be taking all the sugar from the needles and taking them on down to the roots. So maybe it's maybe it's really sweet. Yeah, the inner bark is is called the cambium, and uh, that is often a part of a plant that's used both either medicinally or edibly um, because it does have the, the sugars and the the minerals and the nutrients and a lot of the metabolic compounds that the tree is creating. That's its its primary uh, cellular transport system is that inner bark system of the phloem and the xylem. And so it sounds like you could just um, open up a tree and carve out some of that inner bark and chomp down. It would be delicious, maybe. Deli- well, it doesn't say how delicious. It just says that it would be eaten fresh or dried into cakes. And cakes, that sounds delicious. It does sound delicious. <laughs> <laughs> um, sure. And then, for, uh, and, and most of that information is for all spruces. Um, and when it comes to the Piscea, Engelmani, the Engelman spruce, which is around here in, in Montana, uh, Wikipedia had one extra comment about that one, and that was, 
Wood from slow-grown trees at high altitude has a specialized use in making acoustic guitars and harps. Oh, nice. So, instruments. Yeah. It must be and particularly dense and hold its shape well, or some has some sort of you know res, resonant rather than resinous properties. <laughs> it must vibrate just right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that's all I got to say about uh, Piscier Engelmani. I feel like I'm. I'm in the uh, Harry Potter movie. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean... Paisie Engelmani. Those were the, the words used often in spells and incantations, right? The Latin. And it was the... Uh... It's not Leviosa. It's Leviosa. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, uh, Thomas Elpel has given us liberty to uh, just kind of brutalize the, the scientific and Latin type of names. Right. All right, your turn, dude. All right, well, I'm going to go with um, Suga, which is the hemlock tree, the hemlock genus, and uh, Suga, Suga heterophylla, uh, which is the western hemlock. And that grows primarily uh, further west, but does extend into Montana a bit. And uh, it's primary, primarily used as a timber and pulp tree. Uh, it it can grow in the shade, especially when young, so it, it often ends up being a tree that's present in the climax forests, and it also has edible cambium that can be made into cakes. Uh, and it's not poisonous like poison hemlock, mostly because it has the word poison in the name. Right, and poison hemlock is a carrot family plant, and the suga species are hemlock trees which are totally right. different. They're trees. They're not herbaceous <laughs> plants. So that's, that's another issue with the whole common name thing is that you start to get plants that are totally unrelated that are called the same thing, and it makes it confusing. Right. So, this right. Is the, so the hemlock if somebody tree. offers you hemlock to eat, then um, they may or may not be trying to kill you. Right. They might be trying to give you something delicious that'll be good for you, or they might be trying to kill you. Right. So if it's bark and twigs because uh, poison hemlock doesn't have bark or tw- twigs. It's you know an herbaceous plant that will dry out at the end of the year, but it doesn't have true woody material. Um, the bark and twigs could be used in a tea for sore mouth, throat, kidneys, or bladder problems. So you know, si- similar to some of these other uh, teas, they, they function as diuretics, uh, so they, they work in your you know urinary tract system. And uh, then also... Uh, says it, it's an astringent, which is good for a sore mouth or throat. Um, and then what you want to remember, if you're going to use the inner bark for eating, uh, says that Native Americans used it in the springtime, which is when you know these plants are growing in the spring, primarily the Pinaceae family plants. And so that's when most of the sap is moving. So that's when it's going to be the sweetest and have the most nutrients. Uh, but you don't want to you know, girdle a tree unless you're wanting that tree to be killed so that's something to be concerned about when you're using inner bark is that you know that bark doesn't really grow back you just partially girdle at a tree when you do that so if you have a lot of saplings you might collect a lot from those as kind of a forest management strategy so you don't have a ton of regrowth of that tree um, and you keep the canopy open but you probably don't want to harvest a lot of the cambium from a nice mature overstory tree uh, that might not be the best use of that in my opinion 
So now, um, I think a good thing to point out before we move on too much further is, is going back to the Douglas Fir, um, you know, whose uh, name I can't remember, whose uh, um, the, the uh, scientific the, the name. The Pseudosuga menziesi. Okay. Pseudosuga menziesi. The, uh, the, the native folks, they would burn those babies. So you were talking about girdling. Be careful about girdling because you could kill the tree. Mm-hmm. And uh, it seems like a lot of times it's like, oh, no, we, we killing the tree is the mission. Right. Yeah, so that's why I was talking about, you know, if you have a bunch of sapling regrowth and it's starting to create shade and you're not getting production in the understory, you might actually girdle all of those intentionally, collect the cambium, eat it, you know, cut them down, use them as poles. You get a bunch of uses out of it, and you open up the forest floor and create more of a woodland type of system where you have sunlight coming down and more production so you can grow potentially more useful plants or have, you know, animal uh, fodder there where you can harvest deer and elk or things like that because they often like those understory plants more than, than the, the canopy, you know, because they can't really reach the canopy. So from all the reading that I've done <clears throat> about the, the practices, the agricultural practices that happened 400 years ago, um, which smelled a, a bit like permaculture, um, then... It, it seems like they uh, a lot of the plants they did not consider weeds at all, but that were their you know their primary staples or their primary whatever primary I mean a lot of value, but there there was one plant that was the weed that was like really getting to be a hassle and really a problem, and they would burn it back and that was the Douglas fir, um, and and it's like they just the, the whole idea of the, like these Douglas fir trees getting out of control and taking everything over is like not okay. So that was so that you know, I just now I just remembered that and I thought it'd be a good time to mention that while you know while we were just talking about the Douglas for a moment ago. Definitely, and and that was uh, you know one of the primary tools that the, <clears throat> the indigenous peoples of the Americas had in their their land management tool belt was fire, and now uh, you know with we have a little bit more sophisticated suite of tools. For example, we could use grazing to manage for uh, Douglas firs. You know, high high-intensity, high-density grazing where the you know cattle just come in and stomp down all the seedlings and manage the system towards a grassland or savanna-type system. And so their energy replaces the energy of the fire, and we get a product out of that being, you know, a beef harvest. And then also we get uh, maintenance of a more open grassland-type of system, which stores more carbon, whereas fire usually is a net export of carbon because you're burning it all off. Cattle can be used to be, create a net import of carbon into the soil system. So that we have a different suite of tools now available to us uh, with our more sophisticated understanding of, of landscape, or different, maybe not more sophisticated, but um, and some of the things like electric fencing and stuff like that that have been developed. But fire is a great way to do it too, and it's you know very simple. You light the fire and watch it burn. <laughs> You know, I I think that uh, every Christmas I used to go out onto the when I lived on the farm I'd I'd pick out a tree and it was probably a hemlock, um, and to be the Christmas tree and and then put it in the house. And then when uh, the twenty sixth would roll around, then it's it would be time to take the tree down. And uh, I did an inner. So you're talking about eating the inner layer of the bark, and uh, I didn't I didn't eat it, but I did something similar, and that is that I would take the tree and I would toss it in with the goats. And they would nibble off all of the bark perfectly, and and it would leave the um, the the inner wood of the Christmas tree behind. 
And uh, then I would uh, trim off the branches to be like, I'd trim all the branches down to be about two to three inches long. And then I would go to the bandsaw and I would um, cut the Christmas tree in half. And then I would nail the two halves up um, uh, next to the door inside the house to be a place to hang up coats. And I would write at the base of it, you know, Christmas 2003 or something like that. Nice. But the, the the thing is, the goats, whatever it is that's in that inner layer that tastes so good, the goats liked it. Yeah, and, and rabbits like it, and squirrels like it, and <laughs> you know, that that's why you, your trees get girdled by rabbits, for example, in the wintertime. There's not a lot of green material out there, but they know that under that, uh, that bark is that inner bark, and that stuff is tasty. <laughs> Delicious. Yeah, so that's, that's a great way to you know start stacking functions and, and use, and it's probably... <laughs> a little tastier to drink goat milk or eat goat cheese or eat goat meat than to actually eat the, the cakes from the inner bark could be my guess. They might be pretty sweet, <laughs> but cause I've never eaten the inner bark of a, a hemlock or a, or a spruce tree. But I'm, I'm thinking if if you are omnivorous that goat milk or goat cheese or goat meat is probably a little tastier and it's a lot easier to uh, do than to slowly pluck away some of that inner bark. Um, they'll do it for you, and you know they're so good to us. I, I love the you know potential to convert energy, and then they'll also give you a bunch of other you know uses. So now, do you have anything else for the um, pine family? No, pine I think we want to just just move on. The, the main things are that we got um, you know needles that are great as tea and a beverage, and medicinally as a diuretic. Uh, they're rich in oils. Uh, most of them have. You know, multiple parts that are edible. You could eat any of the nuts, and they're you know, good as lumber and timber species. So then the next one is Cupressaceae, Cypress or Cedar family. Yeah, Cupressaceae. Cupressaceae. Cupressaceae? Yep. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> so now I took on the genus Thuja. It sounds like a a Norsk god. <laughs> Thuja! I am Thuja! So, uh, I got uh, Thuja Placata, which now sounds like uh, Akuna Matata. <laughs> Who are those? Uh, what was that show? That was the Lion, the Lion King? I think so, yeah, the Disney uh, movie. And it had like the little warthog and the meerkat, right? And the Akuna lion, Matata. and they had the hyenas. Yeah. Thuja Placata. Such a wonderful phrase. And that's the western cedar, Thuja plicata. Ooh, it's the western red cedar, western because red cedar. this is not a true cedar. No, no, no. This, is, so, that, so in order to help differentiate from the true cedars, no, this is a red cedar. That's, that's how they've decided to do this. This is totally different from cedar. It's a red cedar. So this is uh, the, the western red cedar is the most common name. Also known as Pacific Red Cedar, Giant Arborvitae, Western Arborvitae, Giant Cedar, or Shinglewood. <laughs> Which is what it's often used for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So now, I don't know, have you ever done that where you've had a fro and you make some uh, cedar shingles? No, I have not made cedar shingles. I have used cedar shingles, and I have burned cedar shingles, <laughs> but I've never made cedar shingles. Um, I was once at um, uh, at Cobbville, 
and they had a little structure. They had, well, they had a few things where they had cedar shingles on them. But um, in the structure, then Ianto Evans was pointing at it. says, look up. You can see the gaps between the cedar shingles. And you would think that during a deluge, that because you can see the sky, that we're all going to get wet under here. He says, but you don't. He says, when there's, a, when there's an absolute deluge, come and stand here under the shelter where you can see the sky. You can look up and see the sky and stand under any hole you want, and you will not get wet. And look around. It'll be, you know, this, this was in an open area, so it was kind of like there was dusty dirt underneath this area. It was just a, it was an outdoor thing. And look around at the ground and see if, see if there's ever any water that gets onto the ground. There won't be. I I just kind of thought it was like one of the seven wonders of the world. I mean, I I totally I totally believe him that that, that what he's saying is true, and it's like how can that be? Um, so a uh, little little trivia for you, as long as we're talking about the Thuja Placata, the Western Red Cedar, um, and uh, uh, it's it's not so. This is, okay, so I've got a note here. It does not belong to the true cedars, which are of the genus. Cedrus. Um, so, uh, it has been recommended to call them red cedars or white cedars. Uh, now, when I see cedars uh, out in the wild, you know, I'm, I'm walking through a forest or something like that, and I see cedar trees. Anytime I see a cedar tree, I think to myself, there must be water, uh, you know, a, a fair amount of water here where the cedar is. Because it seems like cedars are kind of thirsty trees. I think if you planted a cedar away from the other cedars, I don't think it would survive because there's not enough water. That's just my impression. I could be wrong. Do you know much about that? Um, they definitely are are thirsty. You know, even most of the coop, the cypress family uh, trees, the cupressaceae trees, are, are thirsty trees and will use a fair amount of water if it's available. They don't all necessarily need a lot of water. Like juniper trees, for example. And the juniper is genus. Now, I remember when I lived with my granddad, we were on this 500 acres, there was this patch of junipers, and it seemed like, you know, desert scrub junipers. They were definitely junipers, and uh, we referred to it as like the little juniper forest, but it was dry. I mean, that was some desert area. So I kind of wonder if maybe actual juniper trees, which are short and twisted and gnarly, I, I wonder if uh, if they don't need as much water as a... Red cedar? Red cedar. I had to think for a minute. It's not a cedar. It's a red cedar. In fact, it's Thuja Placata. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, with, with cedars, it needs water. Rot-resistant. I mean, they're pretty well-known. To, you know, for building stuff outdoors, they will last a, a good long while. Uh, I know some people will do fence posts with cedar. Uh, in fact, I've I've um, planted a lot of fence posts and pulled up a lot of fence posts or cedar. I've built rock jacks out of cedar, and I've disassembled rock jacks uh, from cedar. Um, they typically have a nice smell. I I read somewhere in, in the research that I did just before this podcast. That somewhere, I think specifically in Europe, they're used for beehives, which seems odd to me. I uh, somehow think that the cedar would give off something that would make the bees not very happy. But Well, this is where you might be getting confused with true cedars. 
because uh, true cedars, as from as far as I know, uh, aren't native to to North America. Uh, they're native to the Himalayas and Asia and the Mediterranean. Uh, so that might be why in Europe they're used. True cedars are actually in the Pinaceae plant family. See now, um, and, and so a lot of Pinaceae woods are used to make beehives at this time. But um, uh, this was actually during my research for Thuja placata. Interesting. The western red cedar. Um, and and so then it was like beehives were a big one, but apparently, and and uh, which and it seemed like it was suggesting Europe, but it's like well if this is the western red cedar, what it doesn't seem like it would fit for Europe, which I think is a different flavor of west. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, it's west to Asia. <laughs> you know, maybe. Well, anyway, so and and I do know another interesting thing is is that I um, I visited once at great length with a guy that was a uh, uh, an aquatic biologist, and he was uh, saying that like w- when a, a a red cedar, uh, one of our western red cedars, falls into a stream or a pond or a lake, that it does something to the water that makes the water even more awesome for fish. Wow and and uh, and and he shared with me a lot of stuff about that, and I can't remember any of it. All I remember was more awesome for fish, not good for plants. The the western red cedar um, uh, likes to kill other plants. That's why when you go into a a cedar grove, and maybe I should say a western red cedar grove, then um, there's like I've rarely anything else growing in there. Like you could walk around. And the only thing you have to step over is dead logs. You know, it's not like there's any brush. There's generally zero brush. Sometimes there might be a little something, but generally no brush. It's because they uh, they they kind of tend to um, poison all other plants. And that's common with junipers also. And I think most of the plants in the Cupressaceae family. Okay. Uh. And then, of course, the um, western red cedar, Thuja placata, um, is considered the tree of life. Uh, So native folks used it to make damn near everything. And uh, uh, the roots and the bark were used for baskets, ropes, clothing, and blankets. So, uh, in fact... There was getting to be so much written about all the uses of the tree um, by the native folks that I, I, you know, in order to come back and actually record a podcast, I had to stop reading. I mean, it was going on and on and on for like they were going to write chapters about this and how useful and amazing this plant was. It's like, uh, and it, you know, uh, like over in the Seattle area, then uh, they uh, the native folks uh, their their way of living was typically in lodges. And they would use massive cedar planks for the walls, which they would. I, I think I was reading, and I was trying to understand how they would do this. I think that they were splitting the cedar trees while they were still standing, so they wouldn't like drop the tree and then split it. They would split it while it was still standing, and I was kind of trying to read like, how the hell would they do that? But I stopped reading that to come and make this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it it looks. It, I think one of the reasons that uh, 
in particular, the Thuja Placata, the Western Red Cedar, is so useful is that it's lightweight and it resists decay. And that might be why it's good in guitars, why it's good for beehives, why it's good for fence posts and building and shingles and all those things, is that it's, True. it's decay resistant um, and it's light enough that you don't have to build something super strong to hold it up. Um, and and while it's technically a softwood, I think I think of the softwoods, it's still a pretty strong wood, you know, despite being a softwood. So it's lightweight and it lasts a long time, and you know, it's it's relatively strong for being a softwood. So all, all some, great some qualities. Wood, some some softwoods, it's like you know, once it gets to be six months old, they like turn to mush. They just like fall apart. It's like. Uh, it, it naturally composts insight. <laughs> kind of, kind of like, well, what's the point of this? <laughs> so, um, uh, but yeah, this is one where it stays, you know, pretty, pretty firm. All right, that's all I got on Thuja placata. Wonderful. You got any more trees? Um, well, I, I did a, a quick uh, reference on the Cupressus genus, the true cypresses, and. Uh, for me, uh, it's not a cypress that grows in uh, the higher elevations. It's a, a warmer weather cypress, but it's called the Monterey cypress. It grows along the coast of California, hence Monterey. And it's called Cupressus macrocarpa, which means large seed. That's Cupressus macrocarpa. Um, and it's used extensively uh, both as a windbreak tree uh, since it is a coastal tree and can tolerate high winds and salt spray and all sorts of things like that. And also as a, a lumber tree because you can mill it and immediately after being milled it can be used to build things and even things like window and door frames because as it dries it doesn't shrink or warp. So it, it's a very utilitarian tree and it's relatively fast growing for, for a conifer. Um, and it, it lasts a long time because it does have these uh, somewhat decay-resistant properties that all Cupressaceae uh, plants have. So now, uh, how cold can it tolerate? My understanding is down to about 15 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, maybe maybe okay. 20. It, it grows, you know, up through uh, northern the northern coast of California. Um, and so it, it will tolerate frosts and such, but but I don't think you're going to get uh, get it to grow up in the mountains uh, as you go inland in, in North America. It's grown yeah, extensively in New Zealand as a, as a windbreak tree as part of uh, like large sheep farms and things like that. So here in Botany in a Day, for the genus Cupressus, then it has that little number thing where it says there are 15 species globally, and for Montana there are zero. So yeah, I guess it's I guess none of those are going to do well around here. But yeah, where it's warmer, sure thing. Yeah, I mean it, it's you know one of the the most useful trees around. I think if if, if you're doing any sort of woodworking and and timber management. So when I look at the next um, family. Taxodiaceae, uh, the bald cypress family. <clears throat> I'm looking at the numbers down there, and it's um, from Montana, 000. So it's got three uh, 
uh, genuses is, which are uh, oh, you, genera. Yeah, that's right. Like generic genera. I'm, I'll eventually get this down um, after a hundred times or so. But uh, you got your bald cypress, your redwood, and your giant sequoia, um, all of which I've heard of. Yeah, so the bald but, cypress are those uh, this basically cypress that grow in the swamps down in, in Florida. Okay. And then hopefully people are familiar with the redwood forests of coastal California and the giant sequoia forests in, in the mountains, the White and Sierra Mountains in, in California. And, you know, those are the, the larger some of the largest trees on the planet, the giant sequoia is the largest, and the, the redwood, the coast redwood, is the tallest. Okay, and then there's uh, the U family, Taxaceae. Uh, and, uh, yep. Yeah? I was just going <laughs> to say one more thing about the bald cypress family. Okay, um, and, all right. Is that they're all very rot resistant, which is a oh. great, you know, functional property of, of redwoods. Giant sequoias and bald cypress. The rot resistant wood. Awesome. awesome. So, sorry, Taxaceae, the U family. The U's, <clears throat> um, which famous, most famous for uh, making bows. Like bow and arrow bows. Yeah, and then, yeah. then secondarily for the, the medicine Taxol, which is a um, used in cancer treatment and chemotherapy. Oh, neat. Um, and uh, the the last uh, family is uh, Ephedra CA. Ephedra CA. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the Mormon tea family, and they've got a plant that's Ephedra nevadense. Yeah, and and that's um, grows in the kind of southern area of Nevada. Ephedra nevadense, um, hence Nevada Ephedra, and also in southern Utah. And then where I live, where it's colder, we grow Ephedra viridis. And these, these are evergreen plants. You know, they're, they're green year-round. Um, they look a little bit like a scotch broom, uh, but their, their stalks are usually a little bit more round and, and larger in diameter. And uh, they don't, you know, have the nice pea family flowers. But they're, they're great plants. Uh, they tolerate very low water conditions. Uh, high sun, cold, uh, and you can use them basically like coffee or green tea. Oh. <clears throat> now, when we started this podcast, we started going into the conifers, then I probably should have said a thing that, um, I mean, you know, we, it seems like a lot of the stuff that I do is to try and reduce conifers in general for most places because like, I end up going out to a property and it's like, we want to do permaculture. And usually there's tons of conifers already growing there. And, you know, usually the first step is, is like, well, we're going to try and reduce the, the number of conifers and try and grow other things. Um, but on, on one hand, on the other, on another hand, um, there is one thing I wanted to point out, and that is this whole thing about the difference between a forest and a woodland. And and while uh, there's a lot of great foresters and there's a lot of lame foresters, I usually think of, like, when I think of the word forest these days, as opposed to, like, the technical definition of the word forest, um, I, I kind of think of, like, a plot of land that's typically a monocrop, and people do not live on that land, but people go to that land to log it. 
and uh, like the primary function of that land is for logging. Right. Um, and I would call that a industrial woodlot. Really? Yep. That's what I would call it. Because that's what it okay. is. Basically, it's industrial agriculture, and it's a, a large woodlot that's cut down for timber or lumber. Well, all I'm saying is that when I hear the word forest, this is what I think of. And and I grew up with a lot of my family was in logging. And um, uh, I don't know, my, my, uh, uh, my uncle worked for the Forest Service. Um, and, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, logging and, and, uh, uh, growing trees was a big part of, of what was done. And, and, um, it just, <clears throat> so whenever I hear the word forest, this is what runs through my head. It's, it's a plot of land that you typically don't live on that, you know, uh, you, you, you log at some point in time in the future, um, or it has recently been logged, uh, then I think of woodland, and that makes me think of what Ben Law does, and that's where he has some he or somebody lives on a, a chunk of land, usually about twenty to forty acres, and they have a very symbiotic relationship with the trees. And, and granted, throughout the year they are harvesting stuff from the woodland, and they do take a lot of trees for a variety of different things. But it always, the whole woodland looks roughly the same all the time. So there's never like a, a clear cut exactly. I mean, it seems like he's got some coppicing stuff that he does in certain places. Um, and then he'll grow things in rows there. <clears throat> but still, it's it's like you're having a lot of diversity, and the more diverse you make it, then the more that the land gives to you. So the land thrives under your care and and everything's better. So I, I just kind of felt like while we're going into this, it's, it's like good to be able to understand these species because these are fairly dominant species in the area. Plus, I, I think when you move on to a brand new chunk of land, like, oh, look, you got got 100 acres and it's covered mostly in conifers. I don't think the thing to do is to clear cut it and then install permaculture. I think that it's going to be a tan-year transition until you've you've uh, reduced the number of conifers by 90%, and so you're gonna you're gonna you know take roughly 10% each year and do something with them, and evolve towards permaculture. Um, although Sepp Holzer kind of has a different approach. <laughs> right, I mean, Sepp Holzer still leaves behind islands of conifers. I mean, he doesn't wipe them out. He takes out a good eighty to ninety percent. Well, they're they're critical habitat. They're very useful species. They they give you a whole suite of of nutrients and uh, compounds that give you a different group of microbes in the soil layer as the litter falls. Um, I think it, it's important to consider, in particular, in the cold climates, uh, a mix of conifers because they are evergreens, so they are photosynthesizing in the winter time. And, and active and act as a food source at that point in time. Also, as, as windbreak and sun trap, because they maintain their complete leafed out structure during the winter when the winds can be very drying in the western U.S. And also to, you know, collect that sun and, and keep an area a little bit warmer as a microclimate. So those things are very important and, and I think can be integral components of a good permaculture design. 
I, <clears throat> that's one of the things I was kind of thinking too is that they um, they do offer uh, several advantages to a permaculturalist that that's going to use them at least a little bit. Um, and granted, a monocrop of them is not a good thing, but um, uh, one is is that they help to provide um, an edge of uh, pH, and they they also help to provide uh, an edge of like you were saying, microclimate. And, and so in the wintertime, it tends to be a little bit warmer near or under a conifer. And so then that's something that could possibly, um, you know, be part of a design. Definitely. And they provide habitat for bird species, which are basically, you know, impor- importers of a lot of nutrients. You know, they'll f- birds will fly off and collect nutrients from a wide area of landscape and if you have nests or, or food for them in your yard, they'll fly in and make a deposit or a whole nest and make a bunch more birds and you know all sorts of things that, that are beneficial ecosystem services that once you have the habitat, you don't have to do anything and they just keep happening. Do you think that they facilitate... <clears throat> I mean, to me, when I think of like bird habitat, I think that, that there's a lot of other species that are far superior bird habitat species than conifers. Uh, in particular in the summer months and the growing season, but I think once you get to the uh, the dormant season, the cold season, that a lot of birds hang out in the conifers. Well, I think a lot of birds fly south for the winter. There there are a lot of birds that fly south for the winter, but there's many that don't as well. <laughs> okay, all right. And, yeah, that's true. And, and then small mammals and things like that. But um, I'd like to just, you know, make it some technical differentiations and in my opinion uh regarding forests and stuff is that a forest is something that has a pretty much a closed canopy and it's really an ecosystem so it's made up of a mixed species a mix of interconnected species if we're talking about industrial forestry that to me is more of an industrial agriculture application that's when you get your monocultures and things like that and that that i would differentiate it as an industrial human ecosystem um, which tends towards monoculture and to not be very systemic. It's more of a, just a linear production pathway with all of the adverse side effects that we have, see from the, that type of production. Uh, but a forest is an ecosystem, and it has a mixture of interconnected species, but it's got a closed canopy. So most of the photosynthesis is going on up in the canopy layer, and you're not getting a lot of production down at the forest floor, whereas a woodland is a mid-successional stage. A forest is primarily a climax ecosystem, climax successional stage. A woodland is a a mid-successional stage where you have sunlight penetration to the floor, um, less of a complete canopy, maybe 60%, 75%. And so you get a lot more productivity of plants in the understory and more productivity total. And usually in permaculture, we're looking at maintaining these kind of mid-successional ecosystems, because they are the most productive, they're often the plants that we can harvest over and over again, and we have a lot of edge, which is where that mid- middle successional uh, layer is. So that, that to me, is what I, how I would differentiate forest and woodland and then industrial forestry or just monoculture woodlot. All right. <clears throat> Fair enough. I, I think that... Um I, I think that agroforestry is, is definitely a big part. I mean, a lot of permaculture is founded on agroforestry, which is where, yeah, you got a lot more sunlight hitting the forest floor. Um, and uh, I, I still, 
I'm trying to like uh, I, I you know you like when you think of Sherwood Forest, I think of something that's got a complete canopy, like what you're suggesting. But um, I don't know. I'm, I've just uh, there's there's the definition, the technical definition of forest, and then there's what. I've kind of come to think of it as, which I, I hear you saying that when you think of forest, you think of closed canopy. Um, and, and so I, I think fair enough because, um, I, I think that, you know, we've probably each, uh, gotten to this, this point in time through different paths and, and it, it's, the word is simply going to have a different texture for each of us. Definitely. And I, I don't. I personally like to differentiate kind of in an industrial management of systems from an ecological management of systems, and so that that's why I like to get into some of those technical details. Because to me, if we have mixed species that are connected, then we have an ecosystem, and it's more ecological, it's more resilient, it's more productive, it's more likely to provide uh, a suite of ecosystem services and create what. You know, that over-yielding polyculture that they talk about in, like, edible forest gardens, for example. Whereas once we go to monoculture and industrial, we start to get all the side effects and adverse impacts, you know, such as decreased species, um, often increased runoff, often increased disease, um, you know, and increased erosion associated with runoff, usually depending on how they manage the soil and harvest and, and those sorts of things, which are usually pretty negative in a system. That, that that to me is I, I like to differentiate that industrial from ecological uh, land management. Good. All right, Neil, you got anything else? Uh, that's it for now, Paul. If you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com, where we talk about Fuja Placata, homesteading and permaculture all the time. <laughs>